0: Uh, from the book of 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and I want to just read two verses 2nd Timothy 3 uh, in verses 16 and 17 says all scripture everybody say "all all scripture is given by inspiration of God of course you know that word inspiration means God breathed and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness now here's why That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I wanna talk to you for a few minutes tonight on the power of staying in the Word. The power of staying in the Word. So in America, we have a famine. Now, when you look around and you see the ever expanding waistbands, it doesn't seem like we have a famine. However, I'm not talking, and by the way, I'm talking about my own too expanding waistband trying to de-expand my waistband currently, which going out of town does not help with. But we do have a famine, and I'm not talking about that we're we're short on bread, although, of course, bread's higher than it's been in a long time. It's not a famine of food or of water, but it is a famine of hearing, the Word of God. From the book of Amos, chapter 8, and the Bible says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord God. That I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now notice that when they were gone into captivity, Jerusalem would have been west from where they were at. But God said they're going to run to the north and they're going to run to the east and they're not going to find the word of God. In other words, they're going to look for it in every place but the place they should be looking for a word from God. You know, according to the National Congregational Study Survey that was done recently, there are an estimated 380,000 churches in the United States. Now, those are the ones that are registered, I assume, like 501c3 status, and the ones they can count, not counting the little independent works all over the place. So there's probably more than that, but those are the ones that, we're, that they were able to count. And just in case you did not know, according to statistics dating back as early as 2019, there are about 19,502 places in the United States that are registered as cities. Okay? Now, this includes those small towns with populations less than 10,000. And also, there are, again, this is according to the stats I read in 2019, there are only 10 registered with populations of 1 million or more in the United States, in the continental United States. That's almost 20 churches claiming to be evangelical in every city in North America. And yet, there are literally billions of copies of the Bible. And not just billions, I would say that number is astronomically huge if you count the number of uh, downloads from, from your Bible app, for example. There are all sorts of Bibles and translations from the King James Version to the New American Standard Version to Modern English Translations. There's even a very loosely translated version called The Message, which is not really a, a, really a translation. It's more of a paraphrase. But I guess it's better than nothing for those that won't read. We have study Bibles with notes and cross reference scriptures. We have, you know, you know, even if you've never gone into a study of the Greek and Hebrew language, there are resources at your fingertips and most of them are free. There is a there is a tool that I use called eSword. That is a free download. You can download it onto your phone. Now they have something comparable to it on the Android. Uh, it works better on on. On an Apple phone, or if you have an iPad, you can download it onto your laptop. You can go as deep into the Hebrew and Greek as you want. It's got dozens of commentaries. It's got like dozens of different translations of scripture you can put all there in parallel. It's got all these things. You can download, uh, you know, Bibles for free uh, via apps onto your phone and iPad. How many have a Bible translation on their device, on a device in your house? On some level. I remember when, when they would have these little Franklin electronic Bibles. Anybody remember those? And I was like, that's crazy. Who would read an electronic Bible? <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was the, you know, people that bought those things were just ahead of their time, of course. That was before smartphones. So there are Bibles. Not only that, but there are Bibles, audio Bibles, that you can download that will read to you, the Bible. You can get in your car, you can, you can pop in the latest you know, version of your audio Bible that you downloaded for free from the Apple Store or from the Google Play Store, whatever your choice of smartphones would be. And if you've got unlimited data, even if you don't, you can download all that onto your phone and just listen to it offline. And it will read to you the Bible, the Scriptures, on your way to work. If it takes you 20 minutes or you can, or if you're traveling somewhere, you can get all your Bible reading done. You can read the whole Bible. You can listen to the whole Bible like that. The, so the point is, is that the Bible is easily accessible in our day. According to the American Bible Society, nine out of ten homes in America possess a Bible. And not only that, but the average home possesses three Bibles. Now this is physical, either a leather-bound Bible or a hard bound Bible, not not counting the downloads of apps onto their phone or device or their laptop. This is a physical Bible that they can hold in their hand. Nine out of ten homes in America possess a Bible, and most of them own three. And yet, despite the intense availability of God's Word, one recent study that I read said the following, today about 24% of American adults consider themselves to be evangelical Christians And yet, among evangelical Christians, 31% say science disproves the Bible. 33% say that gender is a choice. 38% say that Jesus was not God. 62%, nearly two-thirds of all people, according to this survey, who in America, who consider themselves to be evangelical, nearly two-thirds say that God accepts all religions as equally valid. 66% say that people are generally good by nature and not sinful. 75% say that Jesus was a created being. Amos spoke well of this generation, a famine of hearing God's word. In a place of plenty... We are in a place of famine. And that is a dangerous place to be. And I am not condemning America by any means. I am just simply stating facts that there are countries where the Bible is illegal and the word of God has not largely been spread there. And they will be held less accountable than this generation will be held. That has... The word of God is so easily accessible. America as a nation has turned its back and deafened its ears to God's word. And as a result, as a country, we have severely declined morally and spiritually. We're hearing politicians talk about, you know, legislation against this and that, and we need to do this better and that better, and, you know, I'm not here to argue politics. I'll leave that for people that are a lot smarter than me. And there's probably some good and wise points in some of that, but... What none of the politicians seem to be talking about is the real reason for the decline is we are not reading our Bibles as a country like we used to. Gone are the days when families and married couples would stay together, when boys and girls were not confused about their sexuality and gender, when kids that were uh, in grade school were not, you know, being taught about, you know, gender choices and little girls and Middle school, we're not losing their virginity, and yet here we are in America, and with all of our progress, and with all of our talks about how great of a nation we are, and I believe we are a great a great nation, we have some very serious issues as well. Amen. Going on the days when people feared God and respected authority, we have an epidemic that's worse than any pandemic that happened in 2020, or with the Spanish flu in I I think that was 1917 in the early 1900s, which lasted a few years, and millions died. Millions more died of COVID just a few years ago, as you know. But the epidemic that we have is far worse than that. It's not that we lack opportunity to hear God's Word. It's that we lack an appetite to read and to study intensely and get deep into God's Word. Second Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall be turned away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And I tell you today that people have turned to fables and lies today instead of God's word. And the less America reads God's word, the further away we stray morally. And the more away that we move from our moorings and from our anchors, the things that anchor us to truth and morality, is God's holy word. And we see the fruits of it in society with violence and racism and hatred and all kinds of perverse thinking. Now, we all agree to that. At least I hope you do because it's the truth. We've identified issues with our country, but what about the church? Let me ask you this, rhetorically speaking. How often do you, how often do we read and study our Bible on an intense basis? Let us never forget the great price that was paid for us all to have our Bibles tonight. As a matter of fact, the medieval ages are are so-called... Uh, as you know, it was a period of dark history for, for about 1,000 years when the Bible was banned. And in, in the first century, a single copy of a manuscript, because the Bible was not canonized or, you know, as, as they say, it wasn't put together yet. It was, it was still being written, at least the New Testament, in the first century was still being written. Um, and so if, if you were to get your hands... On a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, for example, in, in based on modern times, it would have cost you up to between ten and $20,000 per manuscript or per scroll just to get a copy of Isaiah or Jeremiah. So it's too expensive for the average person. So they would go to Jewish synagogues to hear the Old Testament scriptures read. And that's how they got the word of God. They would go to these synagogues and they would hear it read. And New Testament Christians would hear the epistles read when they would come together. Also, many of them would go to Jewish synagogues and they would hear the Old Testament read. And then the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and other apostles would write epistles to them that the New Testament church considered the inspired word of God and and. and What we now know is our New Testament was being written, so those epistles would be read in the churches on Sundays or whenever it was that they would meet, whether it would be in small groups or wherever that was, they would read those things. But the Catholic Church during the medieval times discouraged the populace from reading any portion of the Bible, even after they canonized it and put it together. During the later dark ages, this policy intensified with the prohibition of translating the Bible into any native language other than the ones that it was originally written in which was Greek and Latin. And of course, most people could not read, much less read Greek and Latin. You would have had to have been a Catholic monk. You would have had to have been educated. And so they said, uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not attacking the Catholics tonight. I'm just saying these, these are facts of history. They said... We will interpret the Bible for you, you're ignorant, you're too stupid, you're too uneducated to understand the Bible. So we will interpret the Bible for you. so just trust us week, week. As a matter of fact, there are there are multiple decrees that discouraged and even outlawed reading the Bible or translating it into any modern language. Here's one of them, the decree of the Council of Toulouse in 1229. In 1229 AD, say, and I quote, we prohibit all, no, sorry, it it, it says, we we prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament, but we mostly strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. Here's a ruling of the Council of Tarragona in 1234. A.D. says, and again I quote, No one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments in their Romance language. And if anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days after promulgation of this decree so that they may be burned. Here's a proclamation at the Ecumenical Council of Constance in 1415 A.D. Oxford professor and theologian John Wycliffe was the first around 1380 A.D. to translate the New Testament into English to, quote unquote, to help Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue in which they know best their Christ's sentence. And for this heresy, Wycliffe was beheaded and posthumously condemned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who then by the council's decrees dug up his bones and exhumed them and publicly burned the ashes and were thrown into the swift river." And that's what they did to him for translating the Bible after the decree, after the proclamation of the Ecumenical Council in 1415. The fate of William Tyndale in 1536-80, William Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. According to Tyndale, the church forbid owning or reading the Bible to control and restrict the teachings and to enhance their own power and importance. And there were many, matter of fact, there were dozens of men. Uh, John Huss was another so called heretic that was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And many, 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 many more men who paid a deep sacrifice for translating the Bible. The history is filled. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've got a book at home called Martyrs and Mirrors. It's about 2,000 pages. And, 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 and it actually contains, as, as far as we know, a record of, of every person that considered themselves a Christian that was martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. And many of them, and I haven't read the whole book obviously, but many of them were, 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 were burned at the stake or beheaded or, or other forms of death that are I'm not going to mention here tonight. Um, but it was horrible ways that they died. And they, they died, many of them, for just simply reading the Bible or translating it into our modern language. There was a great price that Many have paid in order that we may have the Bibles that we have, and God forbid that we ever take that for granted. From Isaiah 55, the Lord said this, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth and bud... Then it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Let me tell you this. The word of God will prosper in your life if you will get it in your life. You may say, well, I've got all kinds of problems. I've got all kinds of addictions. I've got all kinds of things. Let me tell you what will prosper in your life if you get it into you. God's Word. The Word of God contains power to set your mind free from any addiction, from any bondage. Not only your mind, but your physical body. If if there's an element of that addiction that applies, you know, physically. Like, for example, I know people that have addictions to alcohol. You know, of course, there's... There's a mental layer to it. There's obviously a psychological layer to it. There's an emotional layer to it. But there's a physical layer to it as well. But that word has the power to set all of that free. If you'll get it into your life. Because God's word is the seed that must be planted and allowed to grow in us over time. We who have access to so much Of the depth and beauty of God's word will be judged much more harshly than previous generations who did not have access to that word. Because it's literally at our fingertips. We have it. We have a sword in our hand. And we are, you know, many times people search for marriage counselors when the answer is in the word of God. Or they look for a doctor when the answer is in God's word. Or they look for a counselor when the answer is in God's word. Or they look for a psychiatrist to give them prescription medicine when the answer is in God's word. And he said, you're going to look to the north and you're going to look to the east. But the last place people often look for is where they should be looking for the answer, and that is in God's Word. There's answers in there to any question you've got. It's all contained in that book. It's alive. It never dies. And it still speaks to this generation. Every time you read it, I don't care if you read Genesis 1-1 every day, for 365 days, it's going to get fresh every time you read it. If you look into it, if if you will begin to meditate in that, God will begin to allow that scripture to speak to you in ways you never spoke to before. So God's word is a seed. From Psalms 119, the psalmist said this, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day, though thou through my through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies for they are ever with me i have more understanding than all my teachers for they for thy testimonies are my meditation i understand more than the ancients because i keep thy precepts i have refrained my feet from every evil way that i might keep thy word i have not departed from thy judgments for you have taught me how sweet are thy words unto my taste yea sweeter than honey to my mouth through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And then he said this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. People that, that are not walking in God's word don't even know how they're stumbling. And that's what the Bible says, you know, that, that they will stumble but not know what they stumble at. And that's where a lot of people are at right now. Not just in the world, but some people, even in the church. You know, they think that, that this happened to them, you know, because you know, somebody hurt them or, you know, whatever the case may be. But let me tell you, a lot of things happen to us because we're not walking within the confines of God's word. The Bible says, uh, Paul said we ought to walk circumspectly. You know what circumspectly means? Draw a circle. Have boundaries and walk within the confines of that. That's, walk circum- that's walking circumspectly. And where, what are the standards? What are the boundaries? They are laid down in God's holy word. And when you walk circumspectly, you're walking in the light of God's word. But when you go outside of those boundaries, you're walking in darkness. And every shortcut that you take that seems to be good to the eyes, or good to the ears, or good to the taste, or good to the smell. Every shortcut you take that is outside of God's word will eventually cost you dearly. Just ask Eve. But do you feel the way the psalmist felt about the word of God? Is it your delight? Do you meditate in it? From 1 John 2 and 14, he said this, I've written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. I want you to notice what he says here. He says, you are strong young men. Of course, you know, young men are strong physically. They are the strongest that they usually and generally are in their whole life. And so... He says, you are strong, young men, but he doesn't know their youthfulness as the reason why they're strong. Why are they strong? Because the word of God abides in you. And this word abide from the Greek means to sojourn, to tarry, to continue to be present, to be held, kept Continually. To remain as one, not to become indifferent. He said, you are abiding in God's word. And as a result of that, you are strong. You are strong against what? You are strong against your greatest enemy, which is the world. If I can keep the word in me, I'll be kept by God. Through trials and through tribulations and through temptations, the word protects and guards. And it protects us against the world. That's why he says in the next verse, in verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father but is of the world. He's not changing subjects here. He's elaborating on a truth that he's already established. You're strong, young men, because the word of God abides in you. You're strong against what? In what way? Not because you can lift your bench 450 pounds, but you're strong against the world. Love not the world. How do you love not the world? By loving God's word. The psalmist said, that's why I hate every evil way, because I've got your word as my delight. As the apple of my eye. It's in my heart. It's in my mind. I read it every day. I get up and I think about it. I go to bed. It's the last thing I think about. I dream about it. I get up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about the Word of God. It's in my heart. It's in my mind. It's my delight. And when you have that, you've got a hatred for every false way. And it guards you against the world. Amen. As for young men, most of their confrontation, spiritual confrontation, believe it or not, is not with the devil, but it is with the world. The devil uses the world. And he uses our flesh. But not very often do we actually have a physical or a spiritual confrontation with you know that old sloth foot himself. You might have had that, but most of the time it's the devil using your flesh, or the devil using your world, or, or sorry, devil using the world. As that, because that is his tactic. Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. In 1 John 14, Paul referred to him as the god of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so the world is the general sphere of Satan's influence. How does Satan make you fall? By looking away from the word, if only for a moment. From Genesis 3, in verse 1, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, Ye shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest ye die. What did Eve always have before her up until now? She had the word that God gave her, and that word was, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the reason for that is because when you eat it, you will die. God gave a strict consequence, and God gave you a positive affirmation of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, that tree of knowledge of good and evil was not some, you know, gigantic tree in the middle of the garden, you know, that had the juiciest fruits and the juiciest apples, if you picture that in your mind, sorry to disappoint you, that's, there's no scriptural proof that that's how it looked at all. As far as we know, it looked just like every other tree in the garden. There was probably a million trees in the garden. You can eat of anything. But this one tree. And so Eve always had this in her mind, in her heart, in her thoughts until the enemy showed up. And he put a wedge. Verse 6 says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, if you teach Bible studies, you know that's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also treasure with her, and he did eat. When she saw the tree, Satan, only for a moment took her eyes and mind off of God's command and to look at the tree and all humanity fell into sin and under a death's curse in about five minutes. And that is all that it took. She might have came right out from the presence of God, right out from that Shekinah presence of God and went right in and faced temptation. And just for a moment, she took her mind off of God's word and she got lusting after whatever it is that Satan was trying to get her to look after and... And God said, okay, or, you know, the the enemy said, that's all the chance that I need. Only for a moment. And it began when Adam and Eve got away from God's word. Staying in the word keeps you from loving the world. And will keep your feet from falling. That's why the psalmist said, oh, how I love thy word. He's reminiscing, oh, how I love it. Oh, man, I love that word. It's my meditation all the day. It's kind of like... After you've fasted for a day, and at the end of the day, you know you're going to eat your favorite meal, whatever your favorite meal is. If it's pizza, how many love pizza after a fast? Oh, not a three-day fast because your stomach is not good. But if you've only fasted for one day, you know, you might have your wife making your favorite potato soup. My wife makes some mean potato soup, man. And especially after like a, a three or four-day fast, it tastes real good. And you're thinking about that. It's in the kitchen. You can smell it. Let me tell you, you know, you get home from work and you're tired and you're stressed out. But you start thinking about that word. You pick up that Bible and start reading it. And, and whatever is in that word is going to get all over you. Amen. So when he said, oh, how I love thy word, he meant it's always before me. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word heart in the Hebrew is in in, um, in, in Psalms 119, verse 11. Thy word that I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word heart there in the Hebrew is lab. And it means mind or the inner man or the soul. The meaning is not that I have just memorized it. But that it becomes a daily part of my thinking process. Whenever you think of, if I were to say, who are you? And and you would say, well, I'm the sum total of all my experiences. For me, I'm six foot four. I got some gray hair, a little bit less gray hair than I did three years ago. Two hundred and none of your business pounds. <laughs> Married twenty five years. Like that's who I am. But if but if you know who are you? In other words, now I'm asking, who do you think you are? How do you view yourself to the rest of the world? Who are you? And so when he says, thy word have I hid in my heart, he means I've taken that word and I've made it a part of my thinking processes and how I think. That's what he means by I've hid thy word in my heart. I've made it a part of who I am. It means I'm abiding now in the word. I have a deep internal knowledge that only the spirit of God can impart. uh, From John 15 and 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. You know that there is faith that grows when you begin to get in the word of God. Your faith grows, for faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. If I can stay in the word, then whatever is in the word will become part of me too. It builds faith. You see, under the law of Moses, there was a law that you were not allowed to come into contact with anything that was dead. That is specifically dead bodies. Whenever Samson uh, took, took the carcass of that line, he wasn't supposed to do that under the law. He would have been unclean, and although it wasn't a, a punishment that was punishable by death, he was still unclean for a season, and they would have had to make certain sacrifices and go through certain ceremonies in order that they would be clean again. So under the law, whatever, whenever you come into contact with dead things, your holiness doesn't get off onto that, but that dead stuff gets off onto you, and you don't become holy anymore. You become unclean because that's unclean. Why? Because we are not holy outside of the blood of Jesus. And it's easy for the world, dead things, to wear off unto us. Because we come in contact with them all day long. We come in contact with people. You hear jokes. You hear people say things. You hear, you know, mindsets and carnal thinking all day long. If you work, if you live in this world, you're going to rub shoulders. You're going to come into contact with these things. So we come into contact with spiritually dead things, and many times it can cling to us. From Proverbs 5 and verse 22, his own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. Cords here in the Hebrew means rope. And the idea is it's like that rope that Delilah tied up Samson's hands with and his feet, and she said, Philistines be upon thee, after she had shaved his head, and he rose up, and tried to break those ropes as other times, but he could not, because the anointing of God had left him, if Satan can get you in that place, can get your head resting in the lap of something that is not of God, he will Shear you like a Samson and take away your authority and and put you uh, before the enemies. And bore your eyes out and you won't see things the way you saw them anymore because you're not in the word and Satan has blinded your minds and the things that you once called holiness is now reproached to you and an abomination. And we say, how does that happen? It happens when we stray from God's word. But when I come into contact with God's word, God's word will erase all of that. Remember the woman who had the issue of blood. And the issue that she had was she, she bled. And because she bled under the law, she was unclean, and she was, you know, she would have been made to, to, you know, like the lepers, they would call it unclean, 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 so everybody around them would know we cannot touch that leper, because then we will be unclean, so this woman would have had to have said unclean, 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 and so, so people know I can't touch her, because, you know, she has this issue of blood. It was an embarrassment. Humiliation. Can you imagine being a female alive in those days, having this place where she's bleeding? On top of that, constantly bleeding, you know, without modern medicine and all these things that we have today to deal with it. On top of that, she has to scream out unclean anytime she comes within reasonable distance of somebody that might be considered a man of God. She was unclean, but she pressed her way through the multitude. And so she got to the feet of the one man she thought might not judge her. And she said, if I may but touch the hem of his garment. She said, I'm not going to touch his flesh because I know that then he's unclean. But if I may but touch the hem of of his garment. You know what the hem of his garment was? It was those phylacteries. According to Deuteronomy 6 4, you know, they had to write uh, the Shema, which was here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, that is Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Elohim, Yehovah Echad. They had to write it on their foreheads, they had to write it on their hands, and they had to write to put them as tassels. That's what she wanted to touch. If I may but touch the tassel, the hem of his garment, if I can get into contact with the Shema, if I can get in contact with the word. Are you getting this today? And not only did she get in contact with the written word, she got in contact with the living word. And that's why Jesus stopped and he said, wait a second, somebody touched me. And his disciples said, the multitude is strong in you. Why do you say you touch touched me? And he says, no, no, you don't understand. They didn't touch me. Somebody really. Really touched me by faith because virtue came out of me. And instead of her uncleanness wearing off on Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the holiness that was in that word wore off onto her. Let me tell you today, I don't care how long your issue has been. I don't care what the issue is. I don't care what you've been bound in. If you will become in contact daily with the word of God, the holiness that's in that word will begin to rub off onto you. The joy that's in that word will rub off onto you. The peace that's in that word will rub off onto you. It'll get in you. If I can come in contact with that word, Amen. From Genesis one and two, you probably know this verse. I didn't give this to the sound guys, so it's not their fault. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved. Everybody say moved. Moved on the face of the waters. That word moved in the Hebrew means hover. You know what a hovercraft is. <laughs> hovers. You ever had something that just hovers? Well, that's what it means. It means God hovered there. Okay. Now, that was at, in the beginning, we see God hovering. Now, if you go all the way to the end of the Torah, the Torah, by the Jewish mindset, was the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so the Jews called that their law. It was written by Moses. Okay, so at the end is another verse that's found at the very end of Deuteronomy, and it's in chapter 32, verse 11. And it says this, As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. That word fluttereth in the Hebrew is the same word as is used in Genesis 1, where he says God moved on. And the word is hover. And the idea is that in the beginning of the Torah, God hovered there. And at the end of the Torah, God said, I'm still hovering. So at the beginning, you have the Spirit of God hovering and guarding and moving. And at the end, you have God hovering And guarding and moving. And what you have in the middle is the word. If I can get in the word, he said, you know, the spirit of God literally bookended the Torah. You know, from the very first verse or the first couple of verses in Genesis 1 to the very couple of last chapters in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 the spirit of god said i'm hovering and if i can get in that word then i then that is my place of refuge because he's here and he's there and i'm in the middle and he becomes my refuge Amen. That's why David said so many times, you know, you know, he was running from King Saul, and he was running from you know from all his enemies in caves, and he said, Man, my enemies are taking me over and all these things. But if I can get in the presence of God, then he becomes my refuge. What was David getting in the presence of? He was getting in the presence of that word because at the same time as he was hiding in that cave, God was giving him a fresh word every day. And David was writing it down in the form of a psalm or a song. And that's why how we got the book of Psalms. Was written over 70 chapters by King David alone, and he wrote most of them hiding in a cave. You know, he was, you know, King Saul was hunting for his life on his right hand, on his left, the Philistines everywhere. But he said, I'm right there in the word of God. I'm right there, I'm getting a fresh word. And as long as I'm right there in the word of God, I'm in a place of refuge, I'm in a place of healing, I'm in a safe place. So get in that word. There's power in staying in that word. Amen. Amen. And uh, and I'm almost done. Musicians can come. Anywhere from 73 to 75 psalms were written by King David. And as I've said, many of them were written from King Saul in the cave of Adullam. And so during David's darkest hour, he picked up his pen. One of my favorite psalms, Psalms 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I promise you, if you have ever feel fear or any any negative emotion, if you will pick up that Bible. I don't care if you're reading the begats. I don't care if you're reading the tabernacle plan. If you will just get in that word and read it in significant volume. Read it for an hour. Read it until you got the presence of God there. Oh, but I pray in the morning and I can't feel God. Then pick up that Bible and get your nose in that book and read it until the Spirit of God falls. And I promise you, He will. It won't be very long where you start reading those psalms or reading something out of Isaiah, and something will jump fresh out at you, and you'll begin to feel the Spirit of God descending, you know, in that room where you're at, or in the car, wherever it is you're at, and you'll begin to lift your hands and worship, and suddenly you'll be in the presence of God because He said, when you're in that Word, I'm going to bookend it. My Spirit is at the beginning, and my Spirit is there at the end. In the beginning, we see Elohim. In the beginning, God. That Word, you know... In the Hebrew is a noun, Elohim. You know, in the beginning God created, but in the very end, what do we see? The very last verse of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the beginning we see a general revelation of God as the creator, as the Elohim. But in the end... We see him up close and personal in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the Elohim that was there in the beginning hovering over the the spirit of God. That hover there over the waters, and I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I have the keys forevermore. I am the middle, I am the end, and I am the beginning, and I'm coming back soon. And if you'll get in that word, then you're staying right smack in the center of where I'm at. Because I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. And when you get in that word, you're getting in the middle of the Alpha and the Omega. You know what else as we stand was, 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 was. In the middle was um, the Ark of the Covenant, and you know the Ark of the Covenant had two two angels. They were cherubims. Cherub was, the word cherub just means covering. So these angels, their job was to cover or to guard, and they each had their wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what was in the middle? You know what the lid for the Ark of the Covenant was? The mercy seat. That was where Moses poured the blood. Or the high priest, sorry. That was where the high priest poured the blood every year. Every year, when God looked down, he saw the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what was in the Ark? The law. God saw the law. Except for once a year when he looked down, he saw that blood-stained mercy seat. And he didn't see the law anymore, he saw the blood. And that's why God told Moses, I will commune with you on the mercy seat. You gotta get in that place of covering. Because when Moses was there communing with God, he was between the wings of the cherubim. The angel of the Lord encampeth. Are you getting this tonight? Encampeth roundabout about. That's, that's soldier language. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about those that fear him and deliver him. If I can get in that word and stay in that word, the enemy cannot make me fall. The world cannot sway me because I'm in that word. There's staying power in that word. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands tonight and just thank God for his word. Do you love his word tonight? Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you for your word tonight, God. The word is a sword. Maybe it's time for some soldiers here to pick up their sword again. Maybe you've been kind of relaxed a little bit and getting in that word. And I'm not just talking about reading it. I'm talking about praying it, meditating in it, quoting it, memorizing it, scripturing it. Just really getting into that word. It's got power to set you free. Let's just find a place to talk to God tonight. Let God talk to your heart. Let that love for his word wash us fresh and anew. He told his disciples, now you are clean to the word which I have spoken unto you. Lord Jesus, wash us with the washing of water by the word. The word that washes our minds and our hearts and our spirits.